0: What's up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today I am joined once again by my man Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, thank you as always for being back, dude.
1: Absolutely, man. Always my pleasure. And really looking forward to this one, to be honest with you. This is something we're gonna cover the topic of uh, energy flux. And this is like my hobby horse. This is something that I apply to myself on a daily basis, and I've applied to hundreds of clients. And it's also something that I've spoken in depth to you about. You've seen my presentation at the PSC, mm-hmm. so I'm extremely Excited to be on this podcast and be able to talk about a concept that I think has so much utility and benefit to so many people out in your audience.
0: Absolutely, man. This is such a cool topic. And you, this is something that I've seen a lot more people talking about, but I have to say, you were the first person I've ever heard like discuss this topic and the theories that we're going to get into. I think the first I heard any mention of this was um, Brand Borsing and Aaron Strikers podcast. I believe it was over a year ago now, where that was like actually the first time I came across you. And I, listen to your podcast and this, is, this is crazy. Like, I can't believe people, more people aren't talking about this. So this episode is long overdue. I'm excited to get into it. Absolutely, my man. Me too. Cool, cool. So basically, the topic for today is energy flux. I would really say this is why you should eat more and move more for better health. So first of all, can you tell us what the concept of energy flux is all about?
1: Absolutely. So um, just broadly speaking, energy flux basically refers – to our state of energy turnover in the body. So basically this concept is the about the relationship between the amount of energy we consume and how much we expend through all forms of physical activity. So this includes both our intentional exercise, like our training in the gym but also our daily movement. So it's everything coupled together that encompasses physical uh, activity, energy expenditure. And what I try to get people to do is think about it as putting more energy into the system in terms of eating more food and then pulling more energy out through movement, which is why I often simplify it down to this phrase, which is eat more and move more with an emphasis on move more. Part rather than just eating more and exercising more. And I think there's, we need to make a differentiation between the two because, like you said, I was one of the first person you heard speak about this. But since that time, I've seen a lot of people put it into practice, but they don't really understand the concept. They haven't looked into the research. And honestly, I've been utilizing this since like 2015, 2016, where it was rough. It was a rough interpretation of what I was doing. And I really refined it around 2017. And I always try to make it apparent that this approach isn't about cranking up a client's training volume. or having them spend multiple hours on a step mill every day, or trying to chase a higher calorie burn during their workouts, just to eat more cheesecake after. Like, honestly, I, I see so many coaches like, they're like, well, you know, you can out-exercise your intake. You can't. You It needs to be coupled together. There needs to be multiple components within a program. You need to program the training and the cardiovascular work for specific adaptations. You need to, you know, program the nutrition for whatever, uh, body composition goal that that client has. And then physical activity is a separate entity, but they all tie in together. So my approach is about turning high energy flux into a lifestyle for clients and about fueling their training, their activities of daily living, their recovery, and every aspect of their lives. So they live in this state of abundance and high energy rather than a state of restriction and low energy availability, which is where I find so many people.
0: I couldn't agree more, man. And I think that very much speaks to a lot of the audience here as well. I know so many people when they start coaching are kind of stuck in that place of I'm moving less and also eating less. And then as you said, basically it's just this place of constant restriction, constantly feeling like shit in your training. And it's also like almost like this deep hole that they dug themselves into. So I, again, think this would be super valuable. What got you into this concept, man? Because again, I kind of see you like as the pioneer with this topic where, again, it's become more and more popular, which I think is primarily due to you talking about it so well and like making it such a well understood concept. But again, like with you being one of the first people I've ever talked about this, like what got you into it?
1: Man, I gotta be honest. Um, to me, coaching has always been about problem solving and it, it, it started with me. It started with problems that I experienced working with other coaches. It mm-hmm. started with problems that I had within my own metabolic health, within my own physique enhancement journey. And if you really think about the topics I cover most often, whether that be on podcasts in my presentations, or even in the posts I make, such as how to mitigate metabolic adaptation or how to increase insulin sensitivity to avoid insulin resistance and metabolic disease. Even things like how to better approach fat loss and reverse dieting phases to avoid the body fat overshoot effect that's so common or that post diet fat regain. And also like our series we did on how to optimize one's P ratio and building phases. These are all problem solving focus approaches. And my goal is to help optimize both a client's body composition outcomes and help them achieve their goals. But they everything that I do, every approach that I speak about or anything that I put out, especially into the general public, it's all centers around helping them avoid the many issues and obstacles that they've dealt with and encountered in the past. And the thing is, over the years, I've had so many new clients come to me in a similar position. And I'm sure you can relate to this as a coach. You, you get these clients that come to you and have this list of issues. And usually it revolves around the fact that they've done a fat loss phase and gone, gone from being in the best shape of their lives to quickly out of shape shortly after finishing their dieting phases. And now they're like worse off. Than where they started, not only physically, but mentally, they're like scarred in the process. So it's, it's not only that we are seeing physiological ramifications, but we're also facing psychological ramifications. And early on in my coaching career, I used to think that this was just a coincidence. Like I thought it was a coincidence. I kept encountering cl- new clients coming to me from other coaches who had been through these vicious cycles of fat loss and then fat regain. But over time, I realized this wasn't a coincidence. This was like becoming the norm or like the status quo of the industry. And it really centers around the fact that most coaches in our space only worry about the here and now and on getting clients results, like in the moment, they want quick results because that's what gets people in the door. You tell them, listen, I'm going to get you shredded in 12 weeks. And I always say this, you heard this in my presentation. I am not about physique transformations at this point in my career. I'm about life transformations. I don't care what you can do in 12 weeks. I want to see what we can do in 12 months. And the issue that I see with a lot of coaches, even up until this point, although the industry has evolved, is that they they look for quick results without any consideration for their client's health, the maintenance of those results that they get, and they don't have their long-term development in mind. So like I mentioned, I was utilizing high energy flux around 2015, 2016, but honestly, it was a rough, it was a very rough interpretation of what I have now. There wasn't a lot of literature on it. I wasn't as experienced So I made mistakes along the way. And that's where I didn't speak about it often. I utilized it with clients. I took notes. I used clients as case studies and I used myself. But around 2017, I started to shift my focus mostly from being purely like a fat loss coach to more focusing on both fat loss and fat loss maintenance and finding out what were the most effective interventions that I could use with clients to ensure that they not only got lean but remain lean after their fat loss phases ended, which is something I constantly see other coaches fail to do. So the problem is many in this industry focus far too much on just fat loss and eating less and exercising more and not enough on what can happen with this single-minded approach and what they need to do post-diet to a mid- you know, mitigate metabolic adaptation and post diet fat regain. Like I hear a lot of people talking about fat loss phases, getting shredded, all this stuff. Very few few people talking about maintenance phases or reverse dieting phases or any of these other health phases. It's not as sexy, but here's the thing. Like I always say, a healthy body is a responsive body. So if you really want long-term results in your clients, or if you're a client out there and your coach doesn't talk to you about in advance about the next phase or what we need to do after the diet, diet after the diet, like They're not looking out for your long-term development or progress, and whatever progress you do get is gonna be short-lived. And here's the thing. We always hear that 95% of diets fail. So most people think that they have an issue with losing fat and weight, and they think it's because they're metabolically damaged or their weight loss or fat loss resistance. But we know calorie deficits do work. So it's not that they have an issue actually losing fat. The issue lies in the approach they're taking, and even more so in the maintenance of that fat loss which is why most, like most of the recent studies on uh, weight loss management actually show that between 80 and up to 97% of people who diet will regain the weight that they've lost. So actually this statistic of 95% of diets fail have actually been increased recently to 97, up to 97% of diets fail. And that's a huge issue in our society. And we also see through the CDC that the average American is gaining one to two pounds per year on an annual basis. Due to the approaches we take, which is why the whole concept of eat less and exercise more is something that, yeah, it's truthful. That that will work. But here's the thing. It isn't useful or helpful because living a life where you're constantly in the state of calorie restriction isn't something that's sustainable. So if your goal, and this is what most people come to me with, if your goal is to le- like live a life where you have a lean, healthy physique long-term, you cannot sustain that. So we need to take a different approach to this. So basically, seeing these situations, seeing these issues, and it just becoming more the norm than the exception to the rule, you know. This is why I've spent the last few years both researching and then applying certain principles, like a high energy flux lifestyle, with my clients, and then I'm monitoring their results and responses, and have essentially been able to create an approach that's individualized to the person itself. But I've been able to take principles and essentially um, utilize them and apply them to clients so that they're able to maintain a lean, healthy physique year round, which I've seen work with literally hundreds of people at this point, as well as with myself. As this isn't just a lifestyle I promote and talk about. It's something I practice and preach myself. Like I utilize it. I use it. I see the effects and the benefits. And so it's really easy for me to get behind. And because I can relate to my clients, I've been there. I've done the post-show rebound. I've been that person that has has regained all the weight that I've I've lost during a contest prep because my coach left me hanging and didn't give me a post-show plan. So I want to to help people. Like I said, coaching is all about problem solving. I want people to avoid the mistakes I've made and that I've seen so many countless others make.
0: Absolutely. I love where you're coming from there, man, with starting out, like creating these frameworks and these methods to really solve the pervasive problem in the industry. And I think any coaches listening can speak to this. Like no one hops on board coaching with like, yeah, I've never tried dieting before. Um, I've <laughs> never like tried to lose fat before. It's almost always like, man, I've had five, 10 diets and like they've worked, but I've gained weight way back or they didn't work as well as I wanted. But I, I think this is such an important thing to approach this with, with again, like it's not just about that quick fix, but also like turning this into a sustainable lifestyle in the long term. So within this, are there different states of energy flux
1: that we can be in? Yeah, absolutely. So let's think about it from just like an overview perspective. The first thing we need to focus on when we're trying to maintain a lean physique, especially after finishing a fat loss phase, is we need to get back to maintenance calories. So basically our goal is to get in a state of energy balance where both our energy expenditure and our calorie intake are evenly matched. So we can reach the state of energy balance using either a high or a low energy flux approach, but what state you achieve is pretty much dependent on the amount of activity you do and the amount of calories you consume daily. So for example in one case if you're in a low energy flux state you'd be essentially maintaining your body composition and your body weight through eating a low amount of calories coupled with low activity levels and this is honestly the situation i encounter most people when they come to me you know especially if they've just finished a fat loss phase most have been using like i said the standard eat less you know exercise more approach so as their calorie intake has gotten lower their total daily energy expenditure or the amount of calories that they burn per day has dropped and with that their metabolic rate has slowed down as well and this is all encompassed by what we see in metabolic adaptation then from there we see that their neat levels have dropped significantly so they were eating less exercising more but now what they're really doing is eating less moving less and so as a result of dieting they're basically in this low flux state where they've been putting less energy in the form of food and getting less energy expenditure out as a result of that eating less and thus moving less. So this is what I like to refer to as a restriction-based model of maintenance, meaning if you try to stay lean, you can do that. If you try to stay lean using this approach, you're going to have to restrict calories long-term to do so. Now, on the other hand, we have the high-energy flux approach, which is my preference. And in a high-energy flux approach, you'd be maintaining your weight through eating more and being more physically active which allows us to increase your calorie intake much higher than it would be if we stayed in this low energy flux approach as the increase in your physical activity is keeping you in energy balance at, you know, so you're able to stay lean, eating a much higher level of maintenance calories. So being in high energy flux is what I refer to as more of a abundance based model of maintenance, meaning you put more energy into fuel in your body and your body burns more calories as a result. So it's not as stringent. It's not as strict with its calorie expenditure. And so being, you know, the biggest difference between whether you're in low or high energy flux is how active you are and how many calories you're eating to match your level of activity. So yeah, like, you know, like I said, we can stay lean through either approach, but based on both my experience and then also client feedback, I tend to prefer the high energy flux approach so we can eat more rather than chronically restricting ourselves because we know that that has both metabolic consequences, physiological consequences, and then also psychological. It's like, you're you're constantly feeling like you can't eat anything or that food sticks to you or that you always have to be spot on with everything you do. And you also feel shittier as a result. So you're more likely to compensate and sit down more. You're less likely to play with your kids. You're less likely to go out to the park. Like there's so many things that it's not only like, dieting, food is so much more than just fuel. And and oftentimes within nutrition, we look at dieting as just numbers. It, they're, they're playing math. And it really isn't that. We have to realize that food is part of our culture. It's part of our community. It's part of our bonding experience. So if you're in this constantly restricted state, that's not only like impacting you physically, but mentally, emotionally, your connection with others. There's so many things that it's limiting you from doing, which is why I really, you know, for a dieting purpose, if I have someone in a prep, yeah, they're going to have to eat less. But outside of that, that prep scenario where I'm getting someone to sub 5% body fat, I don't believe that you should be utilizing this approach, especially if your goal is to stay lean and muscular year round.
0: Absolutely, man. And it, so basically it sounds like here, when we're talking about these energy states or these different states of energy flux, we're looking at, okay, to maintain, we need to match the energy coming in to the energy going out right? But again, Mm -hmm. we can be on these two different sides of the spectrum. We can be on kind of this move less, eat less side, or we can be on this move more, eat more side, right? Whereas I think for most people, it's easy to commit to like a 12, 16 week diet. I'm just going to commit to being super hungry. I'm good with that. I lose the fat, right? But as you're saying, long term, that is so hard when we're stuck into like, okay, now like my energy is way down regulated, but I feel like shit because I need it so little. It's hard for me to push hard on my training, my recovery. We kind of just create a cycle of feeling terrible, feeling like you constantly have to restrict yourself. And while like within a diet, it's easier to stay motivated because, hey, we're seeing the scale drop quickly. Once that diet's over, it's so much harder to continue to just adhere to that and try to actually turn it into a lifestyle that's sustainable. So from my perspective, this like, again, this abundance versus restrictive restriction mindset just sounds so much more maintainable. Um, So when we're digging into the kind of that high energy flux approach, what are your goals with the client here?
1: Yeah. So my goal overall with, with clients is to get them into a position where they're able to eat the most amount of food possible while staying lean, which is why I prefer to transition them into a high flux model, especially if they've come to me in this low energy flux state as there's only so long that an individual can stay eating low amount of calories before they honestly, they crack and just either give up on the entire process you know, in and of itself, or they go in the exact opposite directions where they go off the handlebars and end up eating everything in sight or binge eating or going through these chronic cycles of under eating to overeating. And and that just has so many downstream effects, both physiologically on your body's you know, likelihood to regain fat, but also psychologically. If you're constantly in these fluctuating states of extremism, you know, it's just not great for both your physical and your mental health. So I really like to avoid that. I like to be able to transition them into a point where they're eating more food, they're doing more activity, they're feeling better. We're reversing a lot of these metabolic adaptations that they sustained in the diet itself. And I'm upregulating many aspects of their energy expenditure while getting them more food in their system. And the thing is that most people can lose fat, but they don't maintain a lean physique because the approaches or the methods that they took to get lean, like the under-restricting, the over Um, you know, under eating or over restricting and smashing themselves in the gym aren't approaches they can, or even want to continue to be able to maintain the results. So they want the results of staying lean, healthy physique, but they're not willing, or they're really unable to commit to a long-term process. And I don't blame them. I've been 4.2%, you know, in a a BIA. So whatever that is on DEXA, but I've been very extremely lean for contest prep. And I'll tell you, that was a short-term goal that was not maintainable, both physically mentally and it shouldn't be. However, here's the thing. What I did to get there is not an approach that I would ever suggest someone to do long term. It was for a day of the contest and that was it. However, there's a lot of people that are taking those similar approaches and doing them to get like beach lean where where it's a sustainable body composition, but the methods they took were not sustainable. And this is why I don't pr- promote or preach about a particular diet or approach. What I promote is a lifestyle and high energy flux is a part of this lifestyle. So with this high energy flux approach, I'm able to get clients to eat and handle significantly more food over time while maintaining their body composition as I'm basically providing their body with more fuel. So it's able to do more and expend more. And this is a model where it's more sustainable. Think about it. We're putting more energy into the system. You're more likely to do activities. You can engage both in the gym and out of the gym. You can partake with your friends, your family, or your children. This is an abundance-based lifestyle. This isn't about a diet. This isn't about a, you know, a quick fix for fat loss, you know, these quick results and stuff. This is something that you can integrate into your lifestyle slowly but surely and get sustainable results that you can hold on to long term.
0: Absolutely. And I'm glad you touched on how we're kind of looking at physical activity outside of our training, for example, as a separate entity here, because I also think like a common mistake people make, again, this is very prevalent on like calls with new clients, where it's like a, okay, I've been trying to lose fat. So I've been training six days a week, I've been doing five HIIT workouts a week on top mm-hmm. of that, right? And it's like, hey, we have to look at again, from a sustainability perspective, like, how long can you <laughs> really keep this up, right? So I, I also think like that distinction is important, and as I know, we're gonna dig into this later on as well. But it's not just like, okay, Brandon said high energy flux, so go train seven days a week, for example, and like add more hit. Like I, I'm, I'm glad we made that distinction from the start, but I really honestly.
1: Go ahead. Honestly, it isn't about that at all. I, I want to comment on that because a lot of times people will misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm literally, I'm very intentionally saying, let's move more. Let's be physically active. Let's stand instead of sit. Let's walk instead of, you know, take, you know, a car, whatever it may be. Let's just incorporate some activity into your, your daily activities because we see that. We're so downregulated from a physical activity perspective. We're such a sedentary society nowadays, especially since COVID. So with that, what I really try to get across to both my clients and then others is I'm not cranking up training volume. I'm not looking at training as, you know, essentially a calorie buffer, because really when we look into the literature on training expenditure, we see that at most, we burn about three calories per minute in a resistance training session. So say that your average, you know, client is training for 60 minutes. They're only burning about 180 calories during that session. So that's very minuscule. And a lot of people don't understand that we don't burn that much in resistance training. And the reason is that let's think about the work to rest ratio. A set might take you a hypertrophy set, you know, eight to 12 reps, or even if we're going between the the vast array of hypertrophy rep range from five to 30, 30 reps that we can all achieve hypertrophy in. Let's think about the context. It might take you 30 seconds to a minute. But if we look at our rest ratios, we're taking usually usually on average three minutes. And if you're following the literature, you're into evidence-based practice, you'll know that Schoenfeld has shown better hypertrophy results, so more muscle gain from utilizing three-minute rest periods as opposed to one minute. So let's look at, say, the average set is 30 seconds. Well, there's a six to one or a one to six work to rest ratio because for every 30 seconds, you're essentially resting six times more in the gym, you know, during your sets, then you are actually working. So you're not expending that many calories. So that's where we look at other aspects of our daily energy expenditure, which is why NEAT accounts for so much more. So if you actually ever were to look into the research on total daily energy expenditure, you would see that our resting metabolic rate generally will, will count for about 60 to 70% of our resting metabolic rate. For active individuals, it's usually about 60% of the calories we burn per day. Then thermic effective feeding accounts for 10. So now we're at 70. So 30% of that comes from our physical activity energy expenditure, which is encompassed by our NEAT, so our non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and our EAT, our exercise activity thermogenesis. So NEAT is everything you do outside the gym your daily movement your steps um fidgeting posture standing whatever it may be and then eat the exercise activity thermogenesis is your direct intentional exercise so your resistance training we actually see that exercise activity thermogenesis so our resistance training only accounts for about five percent of our calories we burn per day whereas neat on average accounts for 25 percent. so you burn about five times more calories outside of the gym than you do in the gym and a lot of people neglect that and don't realize hey the average person that I work with, I'll, I'll tell you personally, the average client that I had that I, I Train and I work with is training one hour a day, five days a week. That is five hours throughout the course of the week. But even if they were training one hour, seven days a week, if we look at that in the context of the full day, let's say that they have an optimal sleep routine. So they sleep for eight hours and they train for one hour. That's nine hours out of the course of the day. So now, out of a 24 hour day, they're tied up for nine hours. We have 15 other hours of the day that we could be active. There's so many times that we could be expending calories or being active. But a lot of people only look at activity and you know, their, their opportunity for burning calories or being, you know, active as being in the gym. And it's only one 15th of the time that you really could be active in, and really benefiting your health and your body composition by being a little bit more acting standing instead of sitting, taking the stairs instead of the elevator, you know, things like that. These are easy things to incorporate into your daily lifestyle and really move the needle in terms of improving your body composition, maintaining leanness, being able to eat more food and so many other benefits.
0: Absolutely, man. And I know I talked to a lot of people coming from like an orange theory fitness or even a CrossFit background where it's, and CrossFit is like less so, but still like their goal with that is like, hey, I feel like I'm crushing myself. I'm sweating a lot. I'm breathing hard. I'm burning a good amount of calories. But even with that, again, it's like, hey, this is 30 to 60 minutes of your day at most, right? Like we have to look at what we're doing those other 14, 15 hours of the day as well, because those
1: are probably going to make a lot
0: more difference. So let's kind of dig into the benefits of this high energy flux lifestyle. I'd like to split this up into a couple categories, but first, as I think this is typically the most important factor, let's start by talking about the
1: adherence benefits you see with clients hundred percent. And I'm glad that you started with adherence because a lot of people will kind of look at adherence on the back burner. Coaches will always look for optimal. And believe me, I work in a lot of high level, you know, um, physique competitors, competitive athletes, professional athletes, and believe me, they're looking for optimal. But what I try to do is I try to blend and meet in the middle between what's optimal and what's practical. And then in the middle of that, it's what's sustainable. It's like a three pronged approach. I like looking at it like a triangle and with adherence, if someone can't be adherent and consistent to the program that you you give them and that you create for them, it doesn't matter. It could be the most optimal program on paper, but if they're not consistently implementing and executing on it, it does nothing for us. So from an adherence perspective, the reason that I really find a benefit from my energy flux is really from the calorie composition perspective or the calorie intake perspective, because being able to eat more and maintain a higher, higher calorie intake, especially to maintain a lean, healthy physique, is going to not only improve adherence because it's going to give you a bigger buffer of calories to play with. So for instance, we see in the NEAT literature that two people of the same body composition, sex, weight, body mass, everything, all the same anthropometrics can vary in need expenditure by 2000 calories. So Jeremiah, someone your size, let's say you, you could be, if you have a low level of activity, be at, a total daily energy expenditure of 2,000 calories per day, or you could be at 4,000 calories per day. And now let's really extrapolate that out and think about it. Would I rather a 2,000 calorie client, uh, you know, Jeremiah as a client, or would I rather a 4,000 calorie Jeremiah as a client? I'd rather the 4,000 calorie Jeremiah all day. You're going to be able to eat more, enjoy yourself, greater food flexibility. And let's think about it. Let's stop looking at food as numbers. So let's take away the calorie equation. Let's just look at it from a flexibility and compositional perspective, really from the nutrient density, the food quality, what we can make that up of, we're gonna have, you know, more food variety and flexibility within our choices. We're gonna be able to, you know, a lot of people come to me and they're in the low flux state. So they're calorie restricted, but they're not only at an energy deficit, they're at a nutrient deficit. So they're missing many of the essential minerals and cofactors. I find a lot of women that come to me with subclinical hypothyroidism. When I run their, you know, into I, I use chronometer most times or I have some um, some software that I use to run people's um, dietary analyses on so that when they come to me with their dietary uh, journals or their logs, I'm able to see, hey, what are they taking in? And I often see, especially with women, they're iron deficient, they're selenium deficient, they're iodine deficient, they're zinc deficient, they're tyrosine deficient. So just the last four that I named are critical cofactors from converting T4 to metabolically active T3. So that's a major component. Uh, thyroid accounts for up to 30% of our basal metabolic rate when you look into the literature. So say someone has subclinical hypothyroidism, they're downregulated, they could be losing about 30% of their resting metabolic rate, which I just commented, accounts for about 60 to 70% of the calories you burn. So we just knocked off from your total daily energy expenditure 20%. Now, in that metabolically adapted state, we see that off of total daily energy expenditure, if you lose 10% of your weight or more, we can see a loss up to 25% of that from Metabolic adaptation. So, say that you were burning um, 3,000 calories per day. Take 25% off of that. I believe that's like um, 750 calories. So, you went from burning 3,000 calories per day to now 2,250 calories. That's significant. You know, you could be in a 500 calorie deficit, but you're so under fueled and chronically in a restricted state that you just erase your, your 500 calorie deficit. It's amazing. So, being able to increase the amount of food that you're taking in is going to have so many impacts on your ability to be adherent because you're going to have greater food intake from a macronutrient perspective. You're going to have more fuel. You're going to have greater micronutrient intake because now you can get a wider variety. You could fit more foods in both foods that you like, but also foods that are really healthy for you. We could focus more on nutrient density. It also improves appetite regulation by making you more sensitive to satiety signals so you can more easily manage hunger and regulate energy intake. So you're not only going to be fuller because I'm putting more energy into the system and you're eating more, but you're also going to be more in tune with your hunger cues. So what I often find with clients is as I'm titrating up their calories, they get to a certain point where we're moving more, we're eating more. But here's the thing. They used to have a lot of cravings. They had a large susceptibility to falling off the bandwagon because they were so over restricted and they were were taking in such little calories that first they didn't have a lot of buffer. So anytime that they had an off plan meal or they cheated or they went off on the weekend they gained a lot of weight so that's the first thing they're kind of scared but then they kind of have this like what the fuck effect and really by that, what I mean is they have one cookie, instead of just having one and having it in moderation, fitting into their macros, they have the whole platter. Instead of having one piece of cheesecake, they have the whole platter at, at um, Cheesecake Factory. It's like they, they really think in their mind because it's this rigid restraint mindset where they had this dichotomous black and white thinking around food. It's either good food or bad food, on-diet food or off-diet food, that when they have that one piece, they're already going to gain weight. So they might as well just say, fuck it, and eat everything. So. Uh, This is not only about adherence, but I'm also improving people's relationships with food because I'll tell you, I came from an eating disorder background. And so I have a lot of clients that come to me and although I do refer them out to therapists, so I don't work with people that are currently experiencing eating disorders. I work with a lot of females as well as males that have had eating disorders in the past, whether it's just disordered eating behaviors, binge eating, things of that sort. And I'll tell you this. We cannot improve your relationship with food in a deficit or under eating. It's only within the time that we show your body, hey, I can handle more food and I can increase my food flexibility and I can reframe my mindset around food that you're going to improve upon that. So this approach where we're eating more, we're adding flexibility. You see that you're able to enjoy yourself. It's going to increase dietary adherence. And I also see that it decreases cravings and likelihood of falling off. We're having those binge eating episodes because you're less restricted, you're feeling more full, so you're less likely to give in to those type of situations and overeat because you're already satiated.
0: Absolutely, man. And if we just dig into like just from the adherence benefits you listed off alone, like those are typically the reason that most people struggle with dieting or like staying lean so much, especially the the what the fuck effect you mentioned it. I think I think it's actually been referenced as the what the
1: hell effect. Like I think that's an actual thing, right? I believe so. I, I I always forget if it's the what the F effect or the what the hell effect. But either way, I'm pretty sure I'm
0: pretty sure it was with the what the hell effect. But regardless, like that in and of itself, I think is such a powerful thing. Like even if we can see like, hey, we are in this higher flux state. So like maybe okay, you win a little bit off track, Um, but we don't see any big shifts in body weight or like your body composition. It's like okay, things are all good the next day, right? That in and of itself like creates more buy-in. And then we can see like, hey, okay, I don't have to overdo it. I don't have to feel like I failed with this. Just from a psychological perspective, that's so helpful. Um, as far as actual fat loss or fat loss maintenance benefits, what do we see here from being in a high flux state?
1: Absolutely. So in terms of both of those entities, we see that maintaining high levels of physical activity have been shown to be one of the key predictors of both fat loss success within the diet itself, but also of fat loss maintenance. So there was actually a recent study that I was reading recently. It was done by Martin in 2019, where they looked at aerobic activity. So movement, they were doing steps actually, and how it impacted uh, the, the subject's body weight and body fat levels without controlling their diet. So this was just an exercise intervention. They did not do anything to their diet. They did track their diet. However, there was no uh, deficit-induced. It was just about increasing aerobic activity. And they utilized different groups in terms of their activity levels, what they started at and what they finished at. But those in the low-activity group were really sedentary. And they were averaging around 6,500 steps per day, I believe, at the start of the study. And they found that by increasing their, their steps just 2,000 per day, they were able to increase their calorie intake by an average of 100 to 120 calories per day. So they ate more. And they also either lost body fat or completely stayed weight stable throughout the course of a six-month study. So these people picked up, you know, you know seven to eight. 900 calories per week where they were able to eat more and they either lost body fat where they stayed weight stable and there was no control over their diet. So this was all, you know, they were monitoring their intake and their expenditure. And it was literally just through the addition of 2000 steps. Honestly, guys go outside, take 2000 steps. It takes you about about 10 or 11 minutes. I mean, it's, it's extremely easy to hit. Like it's so easy to implement. And this just shows the benefit that that alone can have. And this was going from a very low level of activity to We're talking eight to 9,000 steps per day, which is still very easy for anyone to hit. And also, we see from data from the National Weight Control Registry is probably the best piece of, of clinical data that we have on people that are not only have lost weight, but also are successful, that one of the most common traits among those who have been successful in losing weight and keeping it off for at least a year is that they engage in high amounts of physical activity. And those within this group, when they've tracked like their physical activity levels and all their habits, they see that For those who have lost at least 30 pounds and kept it off for a year or more, they average 2,500 calories burned through physical activity per week, which comes out to a little over 12,000 steps per day. And these are people that have lost significant weight loss. We're We're talking 30 plus pounds, but in that registry, if you look, I believe the average is like 65 to 66 pounds on average, and they've maintained that much weight loss. Doing twelve thousand steps per day, so it's it's the main, amazing what physical activity can do not only from an appetite regulation perspective, but also from keeping fat off, which is the biggest problem that we have.
0: Absolutely, and again, the kind of that kind of reiterates the point from the study you mentioned earlier, where they showed a two thousand calorie difference between like similarly sized individuals just based on exercise activity outside of your training, right? Which is truly Mm -hmm. such a crazy thing. Because if I'm correct, I believe in that study most – because I think when people look at metabolism and calories burn, they mostly focus on calories burn through exercise and then BMR. And a lot of people think my BMR is like quote-unquote broken, and maybe that's the reason why. But if I'm correct, it seemed that in that study, most people's BMRs fell in a pretty similar range. But again, it was just this massive variance in the calories burned through meat – that was making such a big difference in body
1: composition. Absolutely. So I did mention that in my presentation. And I believe that when we look into the literature overall on VMR or resting metabolic rate, so how many calories do you burn just at rest? We see about a 7 to 9% difference between individuals. That's like the most discrepancy that we see of individuals of the same sex size and, and all the same metrics or statistics. So that's really mm. minuscule. However, in the study that actually looked at the... 2,000 calorie difference. It was by Black et al. in the 90s. And what they saw was what they actually looked at were people's activities of daily living. This was no exercise intervention. And actually in the groups, when they saw the 2,000 calorie difference, I believe it was that those that worked in an office, like the person that worked in the office, when they were in the office, they burned 400 calories per day for their work shift. When they worked a manual labor job, they burned 2,400 calories. And that's where they saw that those two people same anthropometric Tricks we're talking, same body mass, same muscle mass, same body weight. This is without exercise, guys. This has no exercise intervention. These are activities of daily living. They were a 2,000 calorie difference for the same person.
0: So interesting. Cool. So, and we're of course going to get an application in part two of this series. But for now, let's dig into what benefits does this provide our training, if
1: any? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times when I'm speaking about energy flux, a lot of people, they kind of differentiate it from training. And I like to do that because resistance training should be done with the specific, um, we're looking at specific adaptations to impose demand. So the adaptation there is to build muscle and to get stronger. And that's great. However, it does have a crossover effect to our training because think about it if you're moving more, you're more physically active, you're gonna have better aerobic fitness, which has a ton of benefits in terms of not only our training performance in the gym, but also our recovery outside of it. So you're gonna see that you have better energy utilization. And if we have better energy utilization, that's gonna impact both our muscles, our blood, and our cardiovascular system. And it's gonna allow the body and the brain to function much better. We also see that by having Higher levels of aerobic fitness, that you have improved training volume tolerance, meaning that you're able to do more volume over time. We know volume is one of the main drivers of hypertrophy, and you're also able to improve your work capacity. And what I mean by that is. If you've ever had someone that's really uh, they either do just resistance training or they do a lot of neurological or strength training, they're just kind of in lower rep ranges, they're gassed in between sets. I mean, you can give them a three minute rest break and they they really even can't um, you know, they can't catch their breath between sets. You ever tell them to do 20 rep squats? I've I've had clients do this, you know, 20 rep hack squats, and they want to kill me because they have very low levels of aerobic fitness. And what we often forget within resistance training is yes. Resistance training is an aerobic anaerobic activity. So like on our nutrient po- uh, timing podcast, I spoke about how anaerobic activities, they rely on glucose. They're, they go through anaerobic glycolysis, so they burn glycogen for energy. However, during our rest periods, that's an aerobic activity. That's when you're catching your breath, so it relies off oxygen and it re- relies off aerobic metabolism. So we need to have a good aerobic base. To be able to recover more adequately in between sets. So, by improving our aerobic fitness through energy flux, you're gonna have better recovery both in between your sets and then also your workouts. And we also have to think about it from that's from like the moving side of things, but also we're putting more energy into the system. We're increasing calories. So, with that increase in calories, you're gonna be able to have better recovery capacity. You're also moving more throughout the day. So, you're gonna increase your amount of blood flow, which is gonna help with increasing nutrient delivery and also. That helps with decreasing DOMS and soreness. We also see that we have increased cardiovascular fitness, which increases our ability to do more outside of the gym. And with that, we see increases in both mitochondrial density and capillary density. So when I talk about mitochondrial density, that's not really something we're getting in weight training. But with that, we're going to be able to increase the energy-producing elements of the muscle cells, which increases the amount of ATP or energy that we can generate for a given bout of effort. And then with capillary densities... Um, the more capillaries we have, which are these little uh, microscopic um, you know, cells in our muscles, the more capillaries we have, the more oxygen we can have available to our muscles. So we're going to be able to buffer more lactate. We're going to be able to buffer more hydrogen ions. We're going to have, even if you went into a metabolic phase, having better aerobic fitness is really going to benefit you within that phase because you're going to be less gassed.
0: Absolutely, man. Basically, for the listeners, the aerobic system drives recovery from anaerobic bouts, right? This is going to help us recover quicker between sets. This is going to help us get quicker recovery as a whole. I definitely want to dive into the health benefits of this as well because I imagine like as we build our aerobic system, as we increase our aerobic capacity and the aerobic system gets stronger, right? Like we're going to be able to get in a parasympathetic state quicker. Like as a whole, we're just going to be able to recover and deal with stress better as well. So I'm interested, especially because I know health is a big focus for you, kind of what the health and metabolic benefits here are
1: absolutely you know that health is a major priority to me like i always say a healthy body is a responsive body but let's touch on like the autonomic nervous system we have to realize we have two branches of our autonomic nervous system we have our sympathetic system that is our fight or flight that's when we have stress we release catecholamines like cortisol epinephrine norepinephrine or adrenaline or noradrenaline as some people refer to them and those are stress hormones they're trying to liberate energy but they're also breaking down tissue they are catabolic processes so when we're training especially with weights that's a sympathetic activity. It's driving stress and stress during those moments is great. But after you're out of the gym, you need to turn that off and you need to get into a parasympathetic state. And in order to increase parasympathetic nervous system activation, doing things like walks, doing things that promote parasympathetic nervous activation is going to be driven by the aerobic system. So it drives, you know, our parasympathetic system is our rest and digest state. That's what helps with the recovery and repair. So we see that, Say that we do walks, and that's my main method of increasing energy flux is post-meal walks or walks throughout the day or just standing rather than sitting. These things are shown to decrease both stress and cortisol. And actually, if we look at if we look at exercise literature, walking is one of the only activities that's actually a physical activity that lowers cortisol while simultaneously increasing insulin sensitivity. So you're going to increase metabolic flexibility in the process. And this is going to help with your stress management. So you're able to get outside. And often what I do is I like my clients to start their day with a daily walk outdoors. I want them to get some fresh air. I want them to set up their sleep-wake cycles. We're going to get some... Um, light exposure so they're going to have some vitamin d production they're also going to set up their their sleep wake cycles in terms of their circadian alignment and circadian rhythms Um, they're going to have this greenhouse effect especially if they go out in nature that's been shown if you they, they show in literature that looks at walking groups and they even with individuals but especially with walking groups that go out into they do comparisons between doing walks at say a gym or like a park that has no shrubbery no green and, and then putting people into nature. So going on a trail or going outside and they see that in those groups that go and it's, there's a greenhouse effect terms, like there's trees or there's something for you to look at that. It actually not only decreases cortisol substantially more, but it also has links to lowering the symptoms of depression, and anxiety. So you're getting, you know, a psychological benefit as well. Then from more like a metabolic health perspective, because that's, you know, I'm very passionate about that is we see improved metabolic health as You know, when you're increasing activity, it allows you to have better insulin sensitivity and it also helps with the partitioning of nutrients because think about it, every time we move, even just our legs. We're going on a walk or or say you're doing like sometimes I'll have people do like a couple push-ups before meals, increasing energy flux in that capacity. We're seeing that anytime you contract muscle, you activate glute for translocation. And glucose for translocation is something that when you do it through muscular contractions, it can account for between 70 to 80 percent of glucose disposal. Meaning we don't need insulin to do that. Our muscles can help to drive glucose and nutrients into the muscle cell without the presence of insulin. Now insulin is not something to be Um, demonize. However, if we can get more glucose into our muscles without using insulin, that means we're going to have lower facet insulin levels. That means we're going to be less likely to suffer from things like insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. We also see that it improves metabolic flexibility, like I mentioned before about the parasympathetic nervous system activation. And why this is important is metabolic flexibility refers to our ability to switch between using carbs or fats as a fuel source, which is dependent on the intensity of activity we're doing. So if we're increasing energy flux through daily walks, we're getting better at oxidizing and burning fats for energy since it's a lower intensity aerobic activity. Now, here's the thing. If you actually look into the literature on, um, respiration rate as well as oxidation of different nutrients most people in our society are better at burning carbs and fats because in general most people in in today's society are eating even those that are sedentary 300 grams of carbs plus per day so they're eating a higher carb diet so you're going to oxidize you're going to burn more of what you eat however a lot of people have issues tapping into fat because they're just not aerobically fit enough so even when they do low levels of activity, it's high intensity for them. So anytime your body perceives any amount of activity as high intensity, it switched to anaerobic glycolysis or it switches to like the anaerobic system. So when you get more fit and now you're able to do lower intensity activities in an aerobic state... You're going to be able to burn more fat as fuel. So, when you go into a fat loss phase or when you need to switch off, or, you know, we have to consider that fat is our main fuel source for most of the day. Our wrestling metabolic rate is almost entirely run off fats because think about it what we do at rest, you know, we're sleeping, all those things are oxidizing body fat. As an energy source, so you want to be able to switch between both based on what you're doing. When you're in the gym and you're weight training, we want to be able to use, utilize carbs better. So having increased insulin sensitivity through this energy flux lifestyle is going to let you tap into glycogen better and utilize it more efficiently. However, when you're not in the gym, you shouldn't be using carbs. You shouldn't be depleting muscle glycogen. Just you know, walk to the store. I mean, you want to be able to use fat. So it's all about. These multi-pronged benefits, and then also just movement in general has been shown to have many effects on brain health, um, on cognition. It helps with memory retention. So, actually, if you were to take a podcast or you were to take an audio book and actually listen to it during low levels of movement, you would retain those information better. And I'll tell you personally, most of the studying that I do, it's during walks, and I retain things quite quite well. So, and then from just like a last aspect. This is something I'm really big on with clients, and Jeremiah, you've done a mentorship under me, so you know this. I'm very big on tracking biomarkers, and so I'm looking at fasted blood glucose, you know, blood pressure, and resting heart rate, and we see an improvement in all of those things utilizing a high energy flux approach.
0: Absolutely. So, a common argument I hear against things like this is, "All right, well, I already—that's already resistance training. I'm probably getting most of the benefits. I don't think I need to focus on much like aerobic activity outside of that." What are your thoughts on that?
1: Man, this is something that initially, years ago, when I first started to utilize this approach, I had a lot of clients because remember, especially a couple of years ago, I, I kind of lean towards more physique competitors. So a lot of those guys mm. in their mind, they thought they were really active because they trained 69 minutes per day. Now it's really hard to convince people that in, you know, when someone has a, a belief system, it's really hard to get them to see otherwise. So I sent them literature or I would send them my experience and, and that wasn't enough. So really it took until a couple of years ago when literature started coming out on something called exercise resistance for them to realize. And, and I sent these, them these studies and I explained it to them, but, Increasing physical activity is something that I encourage all my clients to do, even those who train hard. As I find many don't realize the actual negative effects that not being active enough outside of the gym can have on their response to training. So this is really this, I'm going to go through a study, but it was a landmark. It was really important because not only was I telling them, listen, being an, you're, you're not as active as you think you are despite training, but also now it's, it's actually limiting your gains in the gym. And and that's really where it kind of flipped the switch, where it wasn't just like, hey, you're not as active as you think, but it's actually holding you back. So now increasing energy flux, increasing movement is actually going to benefit you. So what we have to realize is that both our time spent training and then our time spent being sedentary send separate signals to our body and have different effects on our health which cannot be made up by just lifting alone. So just lifting in and of itself cannot make up for sedentary activity. And the issue is many of us become more sedentary with each passing year, despite lifting weights and being interested in improving our body composition. And the thing is that the average American pre-COVID was averaging about 5,200 steps per day. That's really low, first and foremost. However, the scary thing is that, let's be realistic about what happened with COVID. We've seen an increase in sedentary time And the amount of people working from home nowadays is significantly more than it was pre-COVID. So you have to imagine that this average step count per day may be less than than even that 5,200 steps per day. And keep in mind, we're talking the average American, but average isn't optimal. So if improving your body composition and maintaining a lean, healthy physique is your goal, we need to do more to be more. That, That just quickly put like, we have to stop looking at averages or what's normal, whether it be on blood work or what the average population is doing and saying, oh, well, that's the standard we should shoot for. That's what everyone else does. If you guys really want a lean, healthy physique, if you want a body composition that stands out and something you know that really strives for better progress, you need to push yourselves and you need to do things that other people aren't willing to do. So there was a study in 2019 conducted by Atkins. And basically what they did was they looked at how low levels of activity induce what's called exercise resistance. So essentially, they were looking at does being sedentary actually cause you to be resistant to the metabolic health effects of training? So what they did was they took active individuals and they put them in this four-day trial where they maintained a high level of sedentaryness. So what they did was they pretty much mimicked what someone would be doing if they were in an office scenario. So they took active individuals and instead of them having doing their daily activities, because these were people that didn't work office jobs and stuff, what they did was they put them into an office as they would, and and pretty much did the same amount of activity that the average person does. So like I said, the average person hits about 5,200 steps per day. And so they split them up into two groups. And there was one group that just did the sedentary time. They worked in the office all day. And then the other group did the sedentary time. And then every night they would do one hour of intense, vigorous exercise. And so that was kind of to mimic what the average person is doing or most people, you know, like our lifestyle clients, they work in an office all day, they're sedentary. And then they do one hour of intense exercise at night. And so what they did was they wanted to see how exercise would impact the metabolic effects of being sedentary. So they're controlling just sedentary individuals over four days and then sedentary individuals with exercise. And so what they did was at the end of the four days, the morning after the last exercise bout, so after the morning after the last hour exercise bout the night before, they gave both groups what's called a a challenge test. And essentially what this is, is a high carb, high fat test to test the difference in the metabolic response between the group that exercised and the group that did it. And what they showed was that there was no significant differences in metabolic responses between groups. And that an hour of exercise, like even after, you know, doing an hour of exercise that was intense, if it was done after a prolonged period of sitting, it did not improve glucose, insulin, and fat metabolism. So, you know, these results, essentially what the researchers concluded was that prolonged sitting and inactivity makes the body resistant to the positive benefits of exercise, which is why we didn't see metabolic health improvements between the groups. Because you would think if the group doing an hour of resist or exercise at night, if they really were getting the benefits, they would, have, they would have improvements in terms of their blood work as compared to the group that was just sedentary. And this is why I focus so heavily on getting my clients into a high energy flux lifestyle where physical activity and steps are part of their daily routines in addition to their training, as this is a more well rounded uh, approach to ensure that they get the most benefit from their exercise habits rather than having them be negated by being sedentary and inactive.
0: Absolutely. And I think just the selling point, you will get more out of your training. Like that's for most people, I think is enough to like, okay, right. Whereas I think if we look at it as, oh yeah, I could still make just as good of, the quality of gains, my health would improve just as much without it. Like, it's so much harder to be bought in. So I think that's super important. One thing I wanted to ask you about relative to your presentation at the Physique Education Collective, you mentioned that to get into a high energy flux state, this is going to require eating more. Like, why does that
1: have to be part of the approach? Uh, dude, I'm so glad you asked this. And, and the reason that I always start every conversation, if you ever hear me talk about energy flux, it's never move more, eat more it's eat more, move more. I I specifically, I'm very intentional. I believe words have meaning. And really when I put out, um, whether it be content or I do a podcast or I do interviews, really what I try to do is be very intentional about my words because words have meaning and they can often be misinterpreted. But what has happened in this industry is that people misinterpret things. So I've actually had many people email me, DM me, reach out to me that they've utilized this high energy flux approach with clients and it hasn't worked. And what I end up when I'm, I'm looking through what they're doing, I'm asking them, "Hey, send me over the instructions you gave them or what you did." They're having them stay at the same caloric intake and jacking up their their energy expenditure. So it's it's move more, but it's eat the same or eat less. So they're now putting themselves into a deficit. Like I always try to get across to people that we need to eat. We need to eat more. We need to move more. This is a coupled activity. You know, both energy in and energy out are not um, separate entities. They're coupled to together. So just like with um, metabolic adaptation when you eat less you move less the same thing happens you should eat more to move more so just the act of eating more helps to increase metabolism which a lot of people don't realize you know a lot of people have this misconception about what metabolism is what metabolic rate is they really don't know what is all encompassed by it and I see a lot of people making errors when they speak about it like they say silly things like you, you gain a pound of muscle you're gonna increase your energy expenditure by 50 calories you know per day that's not how it is it's actually uh, about Um, like seven calories, six or seven calories per day. It's 13.5 calories per kilogram. There's a lot of like mysticism in this industry, but we do know through multiple studies that just the act of eating more will help to increase your metabolic rate and also your ability to handle more food by increasing your total daily energy expenditure through all the components of TDE. So let's think about it we raise our metabolic rate just through eating more. We also raise our thermic effect of feeding. So, you know, if you increase your calories by 500, you automatically burn an average 50 more calories, which is not a huge amount, but let's think about it extrapolated over time. Because as you eat more, you have to go through the process of digesting and assimilating those calories, which it takes, it takes calories to burn calories. And we also have more fuel available. So now we're going to be able to increase our training output you know, during our exercise sessions. So now our exercise activity, thermogenesis went up and we're also going to see that you're going to increase your NEAT levels as well. So now all the aspects of your total daily energy expenditure, all four components have been upregulated. However, We also see in the overfeeding literature that just by increasing your calories, it will directly increase your metabolic rate. So one of my favorite studies, I'm very big into overfeeding studies because uh, I have a a highly adapted metabolism. And you know, I speak on metabolic adaptation often, but a lot of people only focus on the dieting aspect. They only focus on on the down, but I'm always thinking about, these are two sides of the equation. We need to know what happens when we underfeed and we need to know what happens when we overfeed. So there was a a study conducted by Harris et al. And I believe it, it was in 2006. And it was an overfeeding study where they took lean and healthy individuals, but here's the caveat, they were sedentary. So they were lean and healthy, but they were sedentary subjects and had to meet at maintenance calories for two weeks to essentially stabilize their intake and body weight. And they found exactly what their maintenance calories were. This was a metabolic ward chamber. So this was like the most highly controlled study you could have. And then they put them on an eight week period of overfeeding where they ate 1000 calories more per day. And throughout every week of the study, they measured their BMR. What they found was that over the course of the trial, their RMR went up rapidly in the first week of eating more, so just as a result of the increase in food. So these guys didn't gain weight yet. It was just from the increase in food. But then by the end of the eight weeks, their resting metabolic rate had increased by an average of 10%, but there was even some in the group, if you look at the outliers, and there's always outliers in studies, there was guys that just from this 1,000 calorie overfeed increased their resting metabolic rate by 15%. Now, here's the thing. Let's keep in mind, these guys were completely sedentary and there was no exercise involved or increase in activity. So how I look at this, and I've always looked at this study in the context is there's an independent benefit to just eating more from the increase in metabolism it has. But what I see is when we do this in the context of a weight training individual, who's also highly active, there's this like compounding and synergistic effect. And that's what I see with my clients, because as I have them eat more and move more, they're also able to train harder due to having more fuel and energy available in the system and recover better. So now they're they're increasing energy expenditure through all aspects. But also keep in mind that when you build muscle, you do increase your resting metabolic rate. It's not significant, but think about it. We're putting more fuel in the system. We have all these things upregulated. So I'm able to increase their total daily energy expenditure and metabolic rate quite substantially, which is why I see a lot of people that I'm upregulating their calories and they're staying just as lean on 5, 6, 700 more calories than they dieted on. So it's we have to look at both sides of the equation.
0: Absolutely. Okay. That that makes complete sense. And I think that's an important piece to touch on because I do think it would be easy to look at this as just, okay, I'm gonna keep my calories the same and I'm gonna go, go move a lot more. And so you're I think going to become it's become metabolically so adapted. <laughs> going to I think I think that's so important to touch on. So to wrap up part one here, and again in part two, we're definitely gonna dig a lot deeper into application for the listener. I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the research behind the benefits of high energy flux. And I know off air there, there were a couple of studies that we had talked about. Number one being the study kind of did describing the advantage of being at high versus low energy flux for maintaining fat loss and maintaining appetite or managing appetite, excuse
1: me. Absolutely. So um what I always try to get clients to realize is that this high energy flux state isn't just about burning more calories because a lot of people hear what I'm talking about. I'm increasing activity. Obviously you're burning more, but it's not like mm-hmm. I'm chasing calories. I always try to get that across to people. This isn't that we're chasing a calorie burn because I really think that that could. Create a bad relationship for clients where they're turning every activity into a calorie chasing activity, where they're really trying to, like, they're doing it with their training and all these different aspects. They're doing extra Metcons and all these things. That's not what we're looking for. What I really try to get across, both when I speak with my clients, but also any podcast that I do on this topic, is that our training in the gym isn't done with the intention to burn calories. We do it to create adaptations, which include building muscle and gaining strength. Then we use a diet to control calories and we use movement to drive our amount of calories that we can take into the system. But I want them to realize that although it does have benefits, it does burn calories. Like we can't deny that being more active is going to burn more calories. But when it comes to improving your body composition, it's not just about calories. It's also about adherence like we spoke about before. So having these benefits from an appetite regulation perspective And having you have a better ability to match your energy intake, to your expenditure is going to put you more in touch with your hunger and your satiety signals. So you're less likely to overeat and you're going to have benefits that go far beyond just the calorie expenditure of the activity we're doing. So we have studies that look at this, look at, let's look at a comp, you know, um, essentially compare and contrast between a high flex state and a low flex state and see what's best. So there's a crossover study from Paris et al. And they took subjects and they put them into a deficit where they lost an average of 7% of their body weight. So they lost significant amount of body weight. And then they put them into a maintenance phase where they had to stabilize their body weight for three weeks. So they found exactly what their maintenance calories were. And then once they had them in maintenance calories, then they decided to manipulate the system. So they decided, let's see if, what are the benefits or the drawbacks of being in a high flux state for maintenance or a low flux state. And so This is a crossover study. So that means that each participant went through both conditions and they acted as their own control. So what that means is they would randomize the subjects and one would go, you know, some subjects would go through the high flux state first for four days. They'd have a washout period in between, then they'd go through low flux and vice versa. Some people would go through low flux first, a washout period, and then high flux. And the goal was to see if there were any differences between being an energy balance in a high-flux state versus a low-flux state. So in the high-flux state, they had to eat over 3,200 calories per day, whereas in the low-flux state, they ate 2,400 calories per day. And so with that, we see a discrepancy of about 800 calories. And their body weight remained the same in both conditions. So they were at energy balance. They made sure they monitored them daily throughout the thing or throughout the trial And they also measured their metabolic markers and subjective hunger in both the high flux and the low flux state. And what they had them do is when they were in a high flux state, they had them do about 500 calories of physical activity. So keep in mind, they were eating more than 800 calories more than in the low flux state, but they were only burning 500 calories. So it kept them in energy balance because they were doing all like the doubly labeled water and stuff. But it wasn't like they were doing a crazy amount more of activity, but it was enough to keep them weight stable because they're monitoring their body weight daily. So just keep that in mind. What they found was that every single subject. Now this is like an abnormality because we usually don't see a hundred percent on any study that we do. But every subject reported that they had both less hunger and a greater sense of fullness in the high flux state, despite doing more exercise, and still. But they still remained in that state of energy balance, so they were still at maintenance, but they were doing a lot more exercise. And when they were in a high flux state, they also measured their resting metabolic rate and saw that it was higher. And so. Every participant noted that they were more satisfied as well as had better benefits in a high flux state and they maintained their weight in that same state and they were able to eat 800 calories more per day. So just doing higher levels of physical activity, increased fullness, increased satiety, and then also allowed them to live more of a life of abundance and still stay weight stable. It wasn't like they saw this big increase in the scale. So a lot of people, they fear eating more, but if you're just physically active, you're going to buffer that out. And so we also see in countless other studies that higher levels of physical activity result in better regulation of hunger and satiety as being active provides you with a better satiety response post-meal. So you feel fuller after eating a meal, which lowers that likelihood of overeating. So you're going to be able to stay more adherent. And this is super helpful, especially when you're trying to stay at maintenance And you're trying to maintain a lean, healthy physique because we know that we need to be adherent to maintain our physiques, but also the number one thing that people slip up on a diet is because of hunger. So if we're able to utilize this energy flux approach, manage your appetite, manage your cravings and have you eating more and being more consistent with the plan, it's going to have you have better body composition outcomes than staying in that low flux state. And
0: you said in that first study, you mentioned that they lost, the subjects initially lost 7% of their body weight, right? Yes, sir. Okay. And that's like, this is such a, that's super cool. I wasn't actually aware of the study, but like, that's such a good, like if we look at the typical diet process that most people go through, it's, hey, we're we'll probably going you know, to lose about 7 to 10% of body weight, transition to maintenance, and like practice the skill of long-term maintenance, right? And again, the biggest fear that we're kind of addressing here is regaining post-diet. So like that in of itself illustrates so well how effective this can be for maintaining that lean body composition post diet, that's super cool. Um, Another study you had mentioned, this is the one I was most interested to dig into, was how high energy flux impacts body composition.
1: All right, so honestly, this is a study that I was just reading. Um, You know that I do a mentorship, obviously. And so Mm -hmm. I was just reading up on studies based around body recomposition, but actually this isn't even labeled a body recomposition study to be honest with you. However, the findings are about body recomposition. So this is actually a study out of Stu Phillips lab, which Stu Phillips is like the godfather of protein. So it was actually a protein study uh, and it's done by Longlin et al. And so I was looking more into body recomposition and I knew about this study and I looked back into it and I was going through the methods and the, specifically the exercise section and I noticed that they in, like this study involved getting subjects into a higher flux state to lose fat and gain muscle. And so it kind of clicked and I said, let me look into more of the methodologies. A lot of people just read abstracts. That's not me. I'm looking through all these different sections and I take my time and, I was able to pick up on something that I don't know if anyone else has covered because this is a study I have really never heard anyone speak about. But essentially in this study, they took well-trained males and trained them hard and had them in the gym six days a week. So these guys were already trained and they really pushed them. They had them doing resistance training. They had them doing uh, circuit training, all these different things. But the researchers also outlined in the wrap, uh, like in the wrap up of the findings that in order to prevent sedentary activity during non-exercise times, so times they weren't in the gym, they specifically gave each guy in the study a pedometer and had them hit a minimum of 10,000 steps per day. But by the end, when we looked at the average of all the males in the study, they had hit 12,000 steps per day. So again, we're seeing 12,000 steps over and over again as like a really good baseline for weight loss and for fat, or for fat loss and fat loss maintenance. And in the course of this four-week study, listen to this, I actually, I'm pulling up the, the, um, the results just to make sure I'm on point, but they lost around 12 pounds of fat and gained three pounds of muscle, which is a hell of a body recomposition, if you think about it, in four weeks. And they also saw yes. that their fast yeah, their fasted insulin levels were cut in half. So in this study, when I'm looking over all the methods, really when we see it's a protein study, they're utilizing high protein, it was 2.4 grams per day. Um, so right in line with what we would consider to be, you know, a gram per pound, essentially a little bit over, but they included, it was a multi-pronged approach. We're seeing resistance training. We're seeing a diet intervention and we're seeing steps being utilized together to achieve a lean, healthy body composition. And this just shows the utility of taking a higher energy flux approach. It's not just about fat loss. It's not just about, you know, fat loss maintenance. It's about body recomposition. You can build muscle doing this. Like these guys gained a considerable amount of tissue while losing fat and utilizing high energy flux approach. So these things all work together. It's synergistic and that's what I really try to get across to people.
0: That is an insane body recomp in four weeks.
1: Yes sir man. I can send you over the study <laughs> after this.
0: Absolutely I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. So the final one you shot over it was how energy flux influences body fat levels. Can you dig into that?
1: Yeah, man. So this is honestly uh, the study that everyone always asks me about. I know it off the top of my head. And it's something that I'm super passionate about speaking about because I grew up in New Jersey. So I'm right near New York. And as a kid, I used to go out to what's called the Amish country. And so essentially, Uh this study is is by Bassett et al. It's looking at, uh, it was done on an Amish community. And the Amish are essentially an agricultural farming community that don't live by the norms of modern day society. And the reason why this study always sticks out to me is because I used to go visit this place as a kid. So I saw them in real life. I saw their lifestyle, you know, I I saw what they were doing. And so when I stumbled upon the study, I realized, wow, this makes so much sense. And so, you know, just so you guys get an idea, if you're not, you know, I'm obviously from the East coast, you guys aren't familiar with the Amish. These are people who, you know, live a pre-industrial lifestyle. So for example, Um, They don't drive cars. They walk everywhere or they ride by horse and buggy. Um, They don't shop at Whole Foods. I'll tell you that. They grow and pick all their own food. They don't watch TV. So they entertain themselves with community activities. They're playing games. Basically, they do all or or most of their tasks and activities by hand. And they don't rely on the modern day conveniences like cars or dishwashers or washers and dryers. Like you're doing everything by hand. So they live a much more active lifestyle than the average American. And they also tend to work active jobs. So the males in the community are either farmers or woodworkers or construction workers. Whereas most of the females are homemakers. But like I've been out to Amish country and you'll see they're in the garden. Um, they're doing some of the produce, they're picking crops. So they're really highly active. And this study was conducted to look at the relationships between activity levels and metabolic health within this community. So essentially what they did was they took a 50-50 split of men and women within this community. So they had a very even split in population to look at. And they provided each of them with a pedometer and uh, an activity questionnaire. And when they monitored their, their activity levels and body comp measurements over the course of a week, they found that the males, listen to this, the males had an average body fat percentage of 9.4% with a 0% prevalence of obesity. Now in America, we have a 50 to 70% prevalence of obesity. So like, this is, they are the outlier of the outlier. And even the females that aren't as physically active had an average body fat percentage of 25 with a 9% prevalence of obesity. Now, when we look at the average step counts of the Amish, they saw that Monday through Saturday, the males averaged 20,000 steps per day, while the females average 15,000 steps per day. And then on Sunday, which is their only day off from work, they average 10,000. So we're looking at the males, they're around 17,000, 18,000. The females around 12,000, 13,000 on average. Now, if we contrast that with like people in our modern day society, where I told you the average American is hitting 52,000 steps per day, like... It's vastly different. And we see this massive difference between, we're in an obesogenic environment. We have a lot of people that are gaining that one to two uh, pounds per year. And we have these people in the Amish community living a completely different lifestyle, but getting the benefits. But here's a wild thing though. The Amish maintain this level, this low level of body fat and low rate of of obesity with no intentional exercise or dieting. So these these researchers looked at all their activities daily living. They don't do any intentional exercise. They don't diet. In fact, their diet is, is its whole and mostly unprocessed but they because they grow all their own food but they're not calorie counting they're not watching their macros and the guys on average eat 3600 plus calories per day and the females average 2000 plus calories per day and their diet was said to be high in fat and refined sugar so the level of leanness that they're able to maintain is basically due to their high levels of activity they're not monitoring their their intake they're not even worried about calories but they're the quintessential example of people staying lean and thriving in our obesogenic american environment by just eating more and moving more and so with that like it's a great example of people in the real world that really aren't trying to maintain a lean muscular lean healthy physique but they're doing so and we also have to keep in mind that these individuals if you ever see them in person they're much smaller than us so like the average male is like 160 or 170 pounds maintaining 9.4 percent body fat which is pretty shredded on 3,600 calories. And the females are like 120 or 130 pounds maintaining on over 2000 calories per day, which even like active individuals would be lucky to be able to maintain. On. So it's, we have to realize it's a coupling of two things. It's both activity and fuel. And, and so it's this multi-pronged approach where they're living this life of abundance. And we could really learn like success leaves clues. I'm not saying go out and live in an Amish community and, and give up the luxuries of American society or modern day society. But I am saying, let's take some of the ancestral ways like we were meant to move. Like ancestrally, we evolved to move. If we look at the Hadza or any of the um, the what you know um, the hunter gatherer tribes, they're averaging fifteen to twenty thousand steps per day. I'm not saying what the average American needs to do that, but if you're averaging 50, 200, uh, 50, 200 steps per day like the average American, let's get that up
0: absolutely that that study specifically was one that stood out from your presentation at the Physique education collective as well i just like picture just a super shredded on shoe with like a long ass beard and a big straw hat but um man so insightful and i think this is a very convincing argument for why pushing for the state of high energy flux especially if you want to just maintain a lean healthy body composition is so important again as mentioned part two of this series, it seems like the listeners have really been enjoying these two-part series. So part two of this series, we're going to dig deeper into application. But for now, any
1: final party thoughts that you wanted to leave the listeners with? Absolutely. As with any podcast that I do, I really always like to say that there is so much individual context to be taken into consideration. And that's why anytime I get on a podcast, I'll speak about research. I'll speak about principles. I'll never prescribe protocols. So I want to also just highlight, yes, I'm giving you statistics from the study. That's because that is research and that's what the researchers and the um, study reported. However, that's not my um, suggestion or my encouragement to go out and walk 20,000 steps per day. What I'm saying is energy flux is about improving your lifestyle, improving what you're doing and, and being better, doing more, eating more and being more. However, we all started a different place. So what's high energy flux for me may be too high for you. And I really find that a lot of people have taken this approach from me and, and then they'll contact me after and they'll say, oh, it didn't work with these number of clients. Well, you're not utilizing it correctly because you took one of the studies that I, I utilize and you took someone from 8,000 steps per day all the way up to 20,000. You didn't feed them enough and you didn't think about any of the context. I never speak about the actual things I do with my clients. I talk about the principles. And here's the thing. Principles are few but methods are many, meaning there are many methods that I integrate the principles in which I utilize. And, and, and Jeremiah can attest to this because I always say I don't have protocols. I have principles. And the reason I have principles and not protocols is because a protocol is supposed to be a one size fits all prescription. And I don't have that. I work, I've work; i worked with over a thousand people at this point and everything that I do with each individual client is you know, designed and it's context dependent on them. However, I have certain principles that I've seen work and I will um, manipulate or I'll uh, modify them to fit the client itself. But we always have to realize that everyone's an individual and there's so much variability in between people. So what works for one will not work for another. So just, you know, we're going to go into the application next week. I'm going to hit some broad based perspectives, but just keep in mind, this is information. This is to help you guys think more critically, to give you some uh, information and, as well as some of the experiences that I've had. I've had many clients where I've been able to reverse them on 500, 1,000 more calories than they were eating previously. And they've stayed just as lean. So I have a lot of success stories and I have a lot of data through client case files. However, this is also something that I've been utilizing since 2015. And even in those first few years, I didn't get it right. So like I said, it wasn't until 2017 where I really started refining these methods. And so it's been five years in the trenches really utilizing this, not only experimenting on myself, but with hundreds of clients over the years. So just keep that in mind, take this information, but also realize it's all about individual context. I'm not suggesting you do 12,000 or 15,000 or 20,000. If you're starting and you're that average American, you're the average person out there, you work a home job, you're doing 50, steps per day, we see about a 16% decrease in mortality risk from 1, for every 1,000 steps that you increase. Um, so just aim for 1,000 this week. And then from there, you can titrate up put more energy in, put a hundred calories in and maybe a thousand steps and move on from there. But don't just go so Howard out the gate because the biggest issue with our industry is people are either all in or they're all out or they're it's, it's swinging from one end of the spectrum to the other end. And it's this extremism, which is why people go from losing fat during a fat loss diet and being overly restricted with the eat less um, exercise more model to eat everything in sight and forget about exercise and they, they regain. And that's why we have, the weight loss statistics or the weight regain statistics that we have.
0: I love it, man. I am so stoked to get dig into part two and really get into the application of all this. So to wrap it up, we just let the listeners know where they can find you and how they want to contact you, how they can can go about that.
1: Absolutely guys. If you have any questions, inquiries, or for coaching, um, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore, or on my email, uh, which is B at gmail.com.
0: Perfect. And I will have all that linked up in the show notes for usual. As always, man, thank you for being here. To the listeners, part two, as you listen to this, part two should be out within a week. Um, and we'll catch you guys soon.